The sermon text this morning is Romans 15, verses 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Well, I'm sure that you've all read a book, and I imagine you read a book that you enjoyed so much so that you hated to put the thing down. There are certain books I've had that I've read that as I was getting to the final closing chapters, I was actually kind of disappointed the thing was coming to an end. You kind of wanted it to keep going. And that's the way I feel with this book of Romans. Here we're coming to the end, that we really are at the end of the book. We'll still preach for a few more weeks on chapter uh, the second half of 15 and 16, but they're really concluding comments. They're important. I don't want to undermine that, uh, but, but we're really at the end of the book. You, you could tell that as Sarah read, it, it's really these personal remarks. And incidentally, that is the way Paul started the book. In chapter 5, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 through, through 13, he was introducing himself to this church that he had never met. And then if you remember, he then goes in 11 chapters kind of giving an exposition of the nature of the Christian faith. He talks about the problem that all of us have with sin. And he talks about the, the, the grace of God in giving to us Jesus Christ and how through faith in Christ we have new life and we have new life in the Spirit. And we're drawn in together with Jews and Gentiles alike where we are brought to be one new man under the Lordship of Christ. And then after that exposition of the faith, then he began to make application in chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and half of 15. Remember how specific he was? You know, in other words, if you believe this, then you ought to behave this way. Your creed ought to manifest itself in certain conduct. He told us about reconciling with our enemies. He talked about loving one another, forgiving one another, using our gifts for the glory of God. Well, here we're back now in chapter 15, verses 14. We're back with these personal remarks. Paul is really, he knows he's going to go to Rome, and he wants to prepare the people, uh, both to meet him, but also to help him advance his mission to Spain, to those nations that have not heard. Now, I want you to see, when you hear these words, the apostle Paul is really kind of revealing his heart. He has a love for the nations. He wants the nations to know Christ. Now, how do we interpret a passage like this? Because when you look at the passage, it's a historical sketch of his past, and, and next week it'll be about his future. We can't just apply that to us. That would be, that would be poor interpretive skills. What we want to do is, is look at the principles, look at the heart of Paul to draw 
for ourselves, perhaps, an example. We just had earlier read in chapter 15 that the Old Testament, that those saints are examples for us to live accordingly. We don't want to be Paul, but we surely don't want to fail to profit from the life that he led. He has a heart for the nations. I think he wants us to have a heart for the nations. And so there's four principles that I want to draw. There's probably more, but I'll give you four for us to be a church that can actually reflect a love for the nations. Now, many of us are just kind of myopically focused on our, of our own life. I want to kind of pull the curtain back and look a little broader at God's plan for the nations. So the first thing that we see is in chapter 14. Paul has a love for the local church. He has a love for this healthy church. He has a passion for the church. And that's in 14. The, the second point is that he has a love for the gospel, that, that he sees his call to a gospel ministry to be central. That's in 15 and 16. And then you see this trust in the power of God. He trusts in the power of God. He's going to go to the ends of the world as he understands it. You're going to find that in 17 and 19. And then you're going to see the last point is that he has a concern, would you say, for those who have not heard of the name of Jesus. You'll see that in 20 and 21. Okay, so, so first, how do we have a heart? How do we gain a heart for the nations? Well, you've got to understand the local church. I mean, the local church, the healthy local church, is what plants healthy local churches. Paul's ministry was just that. It wasn't just this itinerant evangelism. He's going around to plant churches that will then evangelize areas. That's his goal. And so he's excited that this is a healthy church that might send him to Spain. Look with me at 14. In 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Uh, look at how he begins, though, my brothers and my sisters. I mean, it's family language. Paul's not looking at this as some distant church that he doesn't know. He's looking at this as his brothers and sisters, this language of family. Now, listen, like our families, they had some struggles. We covered that in chapter 14. But even though the family had some struggles, he's still satisfied with them. He's confident in them. Why is he confident? Well, he tells us. He says, you're full of goodness. Now, obviously, they were not perfect, right? They, they were not perfect in any stretch, but he's saying they're full of goodness, which means they're living in godliness. They're maturing. They're walking out the faith. He says they're full of knowledge. It doesn't mean that they know everything. He just spent 15 chapters explaining more things to them, but they grasp the truth. They're a church that are students of the word. They're learning about the faith. But there's a third component of his satisfaction with this church. And you see it there when he says they're able to instruct one another. Now, that is that instruct. That word doesn't mean kind of in a didactic teacher classroom context. It means this mutual admonishment, encouragement, even correction. In other words, Paul is satisfied that this church is mature enough that they can handle that delicate balance of getting into squabbles and getting out of squabbles without separating. I mean, I mean, they're mature enough to care for one another, have disagreements on certain non-essential issues, and stay together. You know how you get, they're not an immature church, right? So you have two little kids, they get, they get their horns locked. They can't figure it out. Mom or dad's got to come in and kind of separate them, kind of explain what's going on. They don't need a third party to come in they can get into a conflict, resolve it, forgive one another, and get out of it. And that's why he's so satisfied in this church. This is a healthy church. 
Uh, he's reminding them, you see in the first half of verse 15, he says, on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. He's reminding them of these things, his satisfaction. He's reminding them of the gospel. Uh, so a healthy church is fundamental to loving the nations. If we're not a healthy church, we don't want to be planting unhealthy churches. So do you think we're healthy? I mean, if you were to do a quick assessment on the health of this church, would you say we're healthy? I mean, the marks of health here are, of course, full of goodness and full of knowledge. We're growing in goodness. We're growing in godliness. The one I want to perch on for a minute, though, the mark of health is, are they able to instruct one another? Are we able to admonish one another? That admonishment, again, has that encouragement factor to it, uh, but also that corrective factor to it. So do we encourage one another? Do we feel comfortable with ourselves that we can encourage somebody else without it being a threat to us? Can we encourage them on their gifts? Even though we may not have that gift, can we at least give thanks to them and to God that they're using that gift for the body? When was the last time you encouraged someone over the use of their gift in the life of this church? Like the media guys. The only time you know them is if they screw up, that's clear. But they're there twice every Sunday. They're there on Wednesday. They're just serving us. They're using their gifts, their kind of electronic gifts and their gifts of media and sound to help us. Or nursery, you know, the teachers and Sunday school, whether adult or children. You know, a church that's healthy wants to give word. Hey, you've been sacrificing in this way. I, see, I have seen this gift in you. I've seen you be willing to extend yourself in this area. For a Puritan once said, whenever truth will allow and fit occasion shall occur, we should express favorable opinions of our Christian brethren. Good men, good women need encouragement as well as warning. That is true. So think about it for a minute. How have you been served and have you given word to it? Start in your home for that matter and then come to the church. We want to be people who speak to other believers about the grace of God. It's hard sometimes to personally assess ourselves. How are we doing? Are we helping you? Are we not? So give word to it. That lends to a healthy church. Secondly, it's not just encouragement, not just a bunch of cheerleaders, but it's also correction. Now listen, the logic of our culture finds correction to be offensive. If you receive correction from people, they assume you're trying to get control over them, you're trying to tell them how to do things, you're judging them. And this is why universities and other institutions are creating safe spaces. We want safe spaces where we can go and nobody will challenge us, nobody will correct us. Now you play that out with a child, you never bring any degree of correction at all in the life of the child, you'll have a monster. A monster that thinks they need no help to live. The logic of the Bible is correction is actually a gift. For someone to bring a word to correct an errant way that might be self-destructive, now you may bristle at it initially, but the Bible says they're actually a good friend to you. Like in Proverbs, it says, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Or in 28, 23, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with a tongue. That's incredible. To bring correction, now obviously when you bring correction, it has to be done with graciousness and nuance, mercy, of course, truth. But when was the last time someone corrected you 
And how did you receive it? Did you get your back up? Did you immediately begin defending? Did you want to, you know, did you want to then immediately correct them for things that you've been waiting to correct them on and you haven't had an opportunity? Or when was the last time you gave a correction and how was it received? I don't, I don't say that a healthy church is ever going around fixing everybody. That's not what I'm speaking about. It's when you have a relationship with an individual, you see them going in an errant way, and you bring about a word of grace to them, helping them move in a way that would produce fruit in their life later. If we don't do that, then we will not be a healthy church. So, so the healthy churches plant healthy church. Paul has a passion for the nations, and the church is the fundamental sending agency with which the nations will be reached. But they need to be healthy churches, not unhealthy churches. So that's the first point. Secondly, to gain a heart for the nations, we have to have a love for the ministry of the gospel. Now, I want to explain that to you. Look in 15 and 16 with me. He says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified in the Holy, and by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I wish you could have put in like a couple periods in these things. They just seem to run on and you got to be taken. But, but look what he's saying here, because you can read that sentence and walk away and say, what did he just say to me? He says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister. I think what Paul's doing is I think he's a little scared. Maybe it's a diplomatic apology. He's written very boldly on some points. We've read them. Read through chapters 9, 10, and 11 if you want. He's spoken very boldly. He doesn't know. Maybe he's a little concerned. He may be off-putting to them. So maybe it's a little bit of, a, of an apology. But what he's doing is he's telling us that he's been called to this ministry by God. By the grace of God, he's called an apostle. And as an apostle, he can speak boldly if he needs to speak boldly. And you understand his call. Again, Paul is kind of revealing himself here. Here's how Paul understands himself. He says, I've been called to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Spirit. What's he saying here? Paul is taking his ministry and he's comparing it to an Old Testament priest but not totally. Old Testament priests would take an offering and lift it up to God, an offering that was acceptable to God so that God might be reconciled to men. So he's drawing on that history. He's showing how he is in line with the Old Testament. Uh, th there wasn't a New Testament. It is a New Testament, but it's part of the Old Testament. It's the Bible. He's continuing that Old Testament idea. And Paul is putting his ministry in the context of a priest. He uses five different words. That word, the minister of Christ, that isn't our word for deacon. And that's the word that we draw liturgy out of. It's a cultic term. It's a term used for the, for the temple sacrifices. He uses those words, he uses minister and priest, offering, acceptable, sanctified. All those are terms of the temple. What Paul's doing is this. He's saying, I'm not an Old Testament priest. I'm a, I'm a priest, though. And what I'm doing is I'm offering up to God these Gentiles who have come to faith. They have been made acceptable because they believed in the gospel. In other words, all that the Old Testament promised and pointed to, Jesus has come. So these Gentiles who are far away from the promises of God have been brought near through faith in the gospel. So when Paul goes out to preach the gospel, he is seeing these Gentiles changed, 
and converted. And he is lifting them up and saying, God, you can accept them. Now they have been cleansed. They've been washed. That's how Paul views his ministry. Now think about his ministry. It was a troubling ministry. He had to travel all over across the Mediterranean basin. He was always under threat of life and limb. He lived in very difficult circumstances, always on the move. And yet look at how he sees his call to ministry. He sees it as a priestly act, as an act of worship. This is Paul. Paul's saying, the charge that you've given to me to preach the gospels, to make them acceptable through the gospel, it's an act of worship. How do you view ministry? When you minister to people with the gospel, how do you view it? Do you even see yourself as a minister of the gospel? See, many of us, we go off rail and we institutionalize the ministry. We think, well, no, the ministry is done by those people who are paid for it, the full-time professionals, the ones who've been trained by it, for it. It's kind of like me or the elders or the other staff. They do the ministry, we do the supporting. Well, let me be the first to remind you that's not true. Each Christian here is a minister, a servant of Christ. Each of you have been given the gospel. You've been given the same spirit. You've been gifted by God in Romans chapter 12. Each one of you have gifts of the spirit. You're all called to ministry. It may not look like Paul's. It may not look like mine. But you have been saved by the gospel. And, and so you are naturally propelled for others to know the beauty of the same gospel. So don't institutionalize it as if it's clergy laity. That's a distinction uh, that was helped and cemented over the Middle Ages. It is not according to the Bible. You are the priesthood of all believers. That's why he says at the very beginning of chapter 12, he speaks about that, that sacrifice. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You're giving yourself to God as a minister. So don't institutionalize it. Please don't romanticize it. We don't want to romanticize the ministry. You know, Carol and I, when we went overseas, we had a romantic view of ministry. It was very immature. I, you know, we kind of thought we're going to go over there and they're going to love us being there. We're going to go to Austria and Von Trapp family, they're going to be there. From the sound of music, we're going to make the hills alive with the gospel and people are going to be so excited. And you know what? It quickly led to discouragement and disillusionment because we didn't realize that the ministry is challenging. It often is not responded to well. Uh, there is much loneliness and hardship associated with it. It was a sweet ministry. It was an effective ministry. But we had, made, we had a romantic view of it. I want to be honest that ministry is a challenge. But we're going to find that his power is sufficient for it. So don't institutionalize it. Don't romanticize it. What I want you to do is prioritize it. I, I want you to see yourselves as ministers of the gospel as a sacred act. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean necessarily going out to foreign lands. It may mean your act of worship unto God may be you taking food across the street. So instead of going across the seas with the gospel, just in the name of Jesus, bring food across the street to someone who's heard, help fix their car. All those can be acts of worship. The small things you do that never get noticed. When you do those unto God, God receives those as a fragrant offering. This really could turn your life upside down. The way you do things in your home and with one another, it could change things. When they don't respond well to you or they don't seemingly appreciate you, 
all of a sudden you can handle that much differently because you know God. God is favored. He is blessed by that. So, so Paul didn't just have a love for the local church. He understood his call to the ministry. Do we understand the call to ministry? That's why I think Paul's reminding him as well. That's why I'm reminding you right now. You know, C.S. Lewis, who said, people need to be reminded more than instructed. Many of you know these things. You just haven't perhaps walked in them. So I'm reminding you. Like a good friend, I'm trying to have you recalibrate your life so that when you leave here after the sermon, you're going to think, all done for Christ will last. God will be blessed in my service, even if it's picking up the... Start small, move large. So that's the second thing, this idea that he loved his call to the ministry. Do you love? Do you love being a minister of Christ? Do you love knowing the gospel? Has it overwhelmed you? Because the third part of developing a love for the nations is, is trusting in the power of God to use you. Look with me at 17 to 19. Paul says, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Hang on. He says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. What's Paul doing here? Paul's giving the glory to God because God's done the work. Now, Paul's clear. He's not one of these super spiritual dudes that won't recognize the hard labor that he did. He says that I have done work in word and deed. He says, I have fulfilled the ministry from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Think North Albania there. He's done all that work. What's interesting, he says, I fulfilled the ministry. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he's done? He's cashing out on retirement? No. What he's saying is that his call as a minister is to plant churches. And he planted churches in that Mediterranean basin. Had he evangelized every single soul there? No. But he planted churches. He established indigenous leadership so that that leadership now could evangelize the rural areas. But in his mind, he had done an amazing amount of work. But what does he say? He says, I'll venture to say nothing about it but what Christ has done through me. Paul is quick to give all the glory to Christ. He says, I won't venture to say anything. Now, he brought many Gentiles to obedience, but notice what he says. It's God, through the power of the gospel of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, is what accomplished those things. Paul engaged in this Trinitarian ministry. Paul saw himself as an extension of the triune God, but God gets the credit. It's what he accomplished through me. He's, he's like an ax. You know, you put an ax against a tree, the tree should feel very safe. But if the ax is picked up in the hands of the woodman, the tree's gonna come down. The ax didn't bring the tree down. It was useful in it, but the woodsman did it. That's what Paul's saying. So for us to gain a heart for the missions, we have to understand the power of God to bring about the obedience of Gentiles. When I talk about the obedience of Gentiles, what does he mean by that? It just simply means that the Gentiles, remember the word Gentile is ethne, it means nations. The nations are coming to obey God 
through their faith in the gospel. That's what it means. That God, through the gospel, by the Spirit, convert men and women so that they now want to obey God out of love, not out of some blind duty or fear. But Paul gives the credit. So, how to gain a heart for missions is to understand that God is able to use us to do his work. That's right. It humbles us, doesn't it? I mean, we live in a celebrity culture. How do you think Paul would have done in our celebrity culture where we name ministries after the men that lead them? Where is the glory for God? I'm not trying to cast dispersions on their motivation. I'm simply saying, where is that recognition? Because we tend to make much of big, visible, influential ministries. But according to Paul, it's what Christ has accomplished through them. Now, remember, Paul has already dealt with this in the Corinthian church in chapter 3. He says these words. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Apollos was a leader in the Corinthian church, and people were lining up behind him. He was a great order, a great man of wisdom. So what is Apollos, he says? What is Paul? People were lining up behind Paul. It was causing the church to fracture. He says, they're just servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. You see him minimize these great men? He minimized. Listen, they're just servants. Nobody bows before a servant. They're servants. And God, anyways, assigned their task to him. He says, Apollos watered, I planted, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Boy, is that not humbling? They're nothing. It says, God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It's all about God. And God has accomplished this through Paul. So gaining a heart for the missions is understanding and walking in humility that it's God who is doing the work through us. But calling you to humility doesn't mean we can't be confident in what God might do through us. I mean, Paul did labor, strong labor, because he believed that God would enable him to accomplish the purposes that God has given. Do you have the same faith? Do you have the same confidence? What is it that you have not done? If you're a Christian here, maybe you've been prompted to speak to someone in the office, maybe someone in the community about the nature of God or your love for the, the gospel, or maybe try to get into some transcendent conversation, or maybe you wanted to possibly teach, but you were kind of scared. What fears do you have that this truth cannot overcome? Paul is testifying to the power of God working through him to accomplish God's purposes. It's no different for you and I. So I would ask you to consider that. What is one or two things that you have often thought about doing for the gospel, for your love for God, but you've hesitated to do? Maybe it's even reconciling with a friendship that has gone sideways and you've just justified it to be, it's better that way. Or maybe it's someone in your office that you've had some conversations with, maybe you wanna ask him to read the scriptures with you. A love for the nations has to have a founding trust in the power of God to work in us. We are his instruments. He will pick us up. We make ourselves available. So I've given you the example before. It's like the sailor. You gotta put your sails up. He'll bring the wind, he'll move the boat, but you gotta get the sails up. Otherwise, it just blows right on through you. 
Okay, so to gain a heart for the nations, we have to understand and have a passion for the local church. We have to love, have to have a love for the ministry. That is each one of us. And we have to have a trust in the power of God. Okay, the last point he makes is in 20 and 21. To gain a heart of missions, to gain a heart for the nations to know Christ, there has to be in our hearts some degree of concern for those who don't know Christ. So look with Paul. He says, Thus I made it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ is already named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never heard of him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. So Paul makes it clear. He says, this is my ambition. My ambition is to go to places where Christ is not named. In other words, he's going to areas of the world where there is no established church. Uh, this is what we call pioneer ministry or pioneer missions, where there is no established church. There is no foundation of Christian thought and idea. And so he's going to go. Think about that for a minute. You're going into a land where they don't have categories, maybe, of the holiness of God or who is the Messiah or the nature of sin. They don't have those categories or their categories are confused. And so you're going in and, and you're a pioneer, as it were. And Paul feels that this is his ambition. So he planted all those churches from Jerusalem to Illyricum, but he's not done. That ministry is done. He is now going over to Spain, and you're going to hear about that next week. He's going to go to Rome, encourage them, get their support, and then hopefully go to Spain. We don't know why Spain versus somebody. We don't know why. But he saw that as an area. In fact, many people feel that that's what stopped him from going to Rome earlier because they already knew the gospel. Paul's ambition was to go where Christ has not been named. But what I want you to see is Paul had a clear mandate from God. Because look at that, in verse 21, he quotes from Isaiah, the 52nd chapter. Let me read that passage to you. He says, this is Isaiah speaking, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, that is the servant, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of a child, children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Well, what is going on here? Well, Isaiah is speaking about a coming servant of the Lord. That would be the Messiah. And this Messiah would act wisely, and he will be exalted. But before he is exalted, he will be marred beyond human semblance. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be crucified so that you almost couldn't recognize him. But he will sprinkle the nations he will draw the nations together. He will cleanse them. The gospel will bring about a reconciliation of people to God. He will. And those who did not see will understand. And those who did not hear, they will understand as well. So Isaiah is promising the coming of the Messiah, which came. Paul sees Christ as the fulfillment of Isaiah 52, but he also sees himself now as the fulfillment of Isaiah. He's taking this word out to those who have not seen or heard and they will understand. So he has the full confidence that God will use him to establish the name of Christ where it has not been named because Isaiah promised it, the servant fulfilled the promise, and now Paul is walking in light of that. So what's this mean for you? Well, to gain a heart of missions doesn't mean that you have to be a pioneering type missionary. 
Although I must tell you right now, I hope one or two or three or half a dozen of you will. I mean, we've had others come from this church to go, that go, the Stephen Christie, that's a pioneering ministry. They're with a people group where the church has not been established. It's arduous work. You have to form those categories. You've got to labor with the people. It's a long-term ministry. And they've been laboring at it faithfully for all these years. They were called to do it. I pray that some of you might just do that. Other ministries, though, perhaps your ambition isn't there. I I could even ask you, what is your ambition for the gospel? What is your ambition? It doesn't have to be where Christ is not named. My ambition was to build up a people who already knew. I mean, I'm not going where Christ is not named. I'm with you. I'm trying to build you up. I'm trying to prepare you and myself to be prepared to see Christ. This is a building ministry here. Uh, I stand on the shoulders of other people who preach the gospel to you, and I'm thankful for them. My work is in addition to their work. But what is your ambition for the gospel? So when you look at your family, your friends, your community, your church, your world, what is your ambition? Who do you know that does not yet see or hear? Now, the reason I'm asking this is because if you understand the beauty of the gospel, the freedoms that you have, forgiveness, reconciliation with God, you have the promise of new life, you have the future of a new heavens and a new earth, that all those things that you've committed and half the things that you've forgotten about, they've all been, they've all been severed from you. Christ has cleansed you. And to think that we should enjoy such a meal with a Savior and not worry about the hunger pains of those right around us who don't yet understand, what is your ambition for them? Do you have any ambition for them? Do you have a desire that they might, that they might enjoy Christ as you? Pray for a desire. If you don't have one, pray for one. Just start that way. Just start, God, would you break my heart over the hunger pains you see your siblings or your parents or your friends or your coworkers. You see them striving after money or sex or position or power. You see it, you know they're trying to fill their lives with something good and meaningful and transcendent. You know the heart, the soul, as Augustine said, the soul is restless until it finds rest in God. You know that. What is your ambition for them? Uh, pray about that. I, I would even encourage you to go back to the verses 17 and 19. God wants to accomplish something through you. What might it be? Start with your family. That's a great place. We want to see our families all loving God. But don't stop there. Move beyond your family to your community. Again, don't cross the seas. Just cross the street. You can start out with simple things like acts of kindness, acts of service to them, praying that you might have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. It may take you years. It may take you weeks. But what's your ambition for those people in your life? And then I would just ask you, just to go beyond that a little bit, maybe, you know, we're trying to model for you when the people pray each week. I I know that you notice every week we're praying for a different people group. We're just trying to get our eyes off of good old North America. We're just trying to recognize there's a whole bunch of billions of people out there that don't know what you know, and we're praying for them. That's our goal. So what's your ambition? So Paul wants us to have a heart for nations. I think Paul is looking to the Roman church. Hey, can you partner with me in the advance of the gospel? 
and the naming of Jesus where he's not named. And that's what we're doing right now. That's all. You know, it's a love for the local church. We have to be healthy ourselves. And then we have to understand that we are all ministers. We're all servants of Christ. And, and that he will do his work through you. There are works that he has appointed for you to do before you were born. And that we want to have that concern. Who in our lives doesn't know him? Are we burdened for them? So let's just take a minute now and ask God for grace to understand this in greater measure. If you're convicted right now, maybe it's a time to repent. If, if you're thankful that you're walking in these ways, then give thanks to God for that. Uh, but, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, th then ask God to reveal himself to you. If he's created all things with his word, he has, will have no problem opening your eyes. But I would just ask you to be sincerely seeking God to reveal himself to you. And, and clearly, if you have questions, then come up after the service or grab somebody even next to you that's a member of this church. They will be able to explain to you about the nature of the gospel. And then I'll pray for us in just a minute.